0: Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Joanne Boravica on January 14, 2019. Joanne is a freelance writer and educational consultant who has been actively engaged in interfaith dialogue and religious education for over 25 years. She's the author of Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics in the Baha'i Writings, and short works including the Baha'i Study Series. The Ten Plagues of Exodus in Light of the Baha'i Writings, and Parallels in the Ministries of Tahereh and Paul. We discuss her book and her other writings in the interview. She's also active as an artist-in-residence with the South Carolina Arts Commission, specializing in mythology and folktales of the ancient Near East, and serves as faculty for the Wilmette Institute, an online Baha'i learning center. I started the interview by asking Joanne where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up?
1: Yeah, I grew up around Cleveland, Ohio, a little town called Parma Heights. I was raised Catholic in a wonderful Catholic church and Catholic community. I absolutely brought the love of Christ with me throughout all those stages. Um I think um, myself, like most teenagers. When I got into my teens I started to have a lot of questions. I wasn't necessarily satisfied with the answers of the that were given through the church doctrines, although my belief in Christ was very strong. I just had a very strong feeling that there was something that I didn't know that I needed to find out. And so as a young adult I explored. A variety of Christian denominations and uh, really invested myself in them, looking for this ephemeral something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. I didn't jump around sporadically. I mean, like 10 years here, eight years there, and really investing in the congregation and teaching Bible studies and taking Bible studies. And it was a journey that I really enjoyed. And I got to meet a lot of wonderful people and be a part of some really great congregations.
0: So what was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith?
1: One of the questions that I really couldn't find an answer to is why there was so much division on Sunday mornings. So there was the white church and there is the black church or churches and there were the poor churches and there were the richer churches and, this in the 80s and the 90s, growing up in the deep, I mean, being in the Deep South, raising my children in the Deep South, because I actually moved from Ohio to South Carolina as a young woman. In the Deep South, there was a a tremendous division, and I I believe there's still great division everywhere that didn't make sense to me. And I heard interpretations of biblical scripture that were uh, derogatory toward other ethnic groups, that I also felt could not have any integrity for an interpretation like that to be attached to the Word of God. So, there was the ethnic prejudice, financial prejudice that was very apparent. This was, what, the early 90s. I joined a food co-op. That was the the time to join food co-ops. And I was fortunate that many members of the group were Baha'is. So, I became curious about that, just as I was curious about other Christian denominations, explored it, and my questions were answered. The group was very diverse. It was financially diverse. It was ethnically diverse. And the group, although predominantly white, was very instrumental in, say, in issues of race unity. And so they were very visual in Martin Luther King celebrations and marches and very vocal about the importance of realizing the truth of racial unity and I hadn't seen that kind of uh, commitment and courage from white people actually at you know in, in any other venue so I was very impressed and I explored and what surprised me was that through my exploration of the Baha'i writings, and that would be writings of the prophet founder, Baha'u'llah, who came in the mid-1800s, what I found was that he often spoke in biblical language, and he gave lessons referring to biblical scripture and stories, and he also explained a lot of the what was, to me, mysteries in biblical scripture. So... I became very excited because I felt like I understood the Bible more studying the Baha'i writings than all the many years that I had in different venues studied the Bible in Christian context.
0: What attracted you to the Baha'i faith such that you would want to be considered a Baha'i?
1: So it was a very small group. And so the uh, Baha'i community, and this was in Conway, South Carolina, it's like it could not, compete with, say, the big churches and the big choirs and the organs and all the amenities that come with large congregations. But what I did find was a sincere fellowship and a sincere desire to put the Word of God into practice, including and especially when it's inconvenient. The emphasis on race unity was in no way inconvenient not in the early 90s, and, and frankly, it's not convenient now because there are so many alternate and ag- aggressive views against that concept. So it was a bit of a social challenge in that uh, some of the people who I knew before who identified me is either with the Methodist church or the Episcopal church and didn't really matter what church I went to as long as it was a church when I actually changed to the Baha'i faith that was challenging for them and I probably lost some of what I thought were friends but people who were true friends were interested in my search and excited for me as I as I was excited about my newfound resource so it was Socially challenging, and yet also it was socially exciting because I had so many new friends and more diverse group of friends, and I really felt like that we were on the forefront of social change.
0: So I'm speaking with Joanne Borovica, freelance writer, educational consultant, storyteller performer, and South Carolina artist-in-residence. We will be talking about her book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics in the Baha'i Writings. But before we do, Joanne, your list of things that you do attracted my attention, especially the storyteller performer. Maybe Mm -hmm. you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, ever since I was a little girl, I was immersed in mythology and ancient writings. I just enjoyed reading them. And as I grew older, I just grew to want to share them. So one of the things that I did as I was raising, my husband and I were raising our three children, was to work as a professional storyteller in the schools of South Carolina. And that was under the umbrella of the South Carolina Arts Commission as an artist in residence. And my specialty was Middle Eastern mythology and also musical instruments and costuming. So I would appear as a person from the Middle East, although I am not Middle Eastern, but I could pull it off. So I appeared as a person from the Middle East and then told authentic Arab folk tales, Persian fairy tales, stories from Syria, from Palestine. This was in the 80s and 90s, And there wasn't a lot of personal contact with people from the Middle East at that time. Now, there is now, but at that time, this was a very new thing to consider. I explained the symbolism of and practicality of the attire of the Middle East, of the veil, and just sort of brought this other world to people who really maybe just saw this in magazines.
0: So I'm speaking with Joanne Borovica, freelance writer, educational consultant, storyteller, performer, and South Carolina artist-in-residence. So, Joanne, let's talk about your book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical mm-hmm. Topics in the Baha'i Writings, which was published in 2016. Now, you describe this as an introductory compilation. What did you mean by that?
1: The, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of biblical references in the Baha'i writings. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the faith, and Abdu'l-Baha, his eldest son and who Baha'is consider the center of the covenant, often spoke in biblical terms because often they were addressing Christian audience or uh, Christian seekers and also Islamic seekers who uh, revered the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, the Baha'i writings are are vast. Baha'u'llah wrote almost constantly for 40 years. So we have thousands of tablets. Abdu'l-Baha wrote so much. What I had hoped to provide was a collection that was organized in the structure of the Bible so that people could pick out. Topics that they were interested in and um, very easily find a Baha'i commentary that spoke to that topic. Because the Baha'i faith is so new, not all the writings have been indexed and cataloged and it's hard to find things sometimes on, on a certain topic. So unless you're a researcher, you might not have that at your fingertips. So that's what I wanted to provide. So the book is structured As the Bible is structured, it starts out with the Old Testament and then goes into the New Testament. It addresses the biblical books book by book and picks out high interest topics. So, for example, the first book of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. And the first lines of Genesis say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So a topic in that verse is God. So then my question is, what do Baha'is believe about the nature of God? And then another question based on that verse would be, what do Baha'is believe about the creation of the heaven and the earth? So I ask these questions, and then I answer them through the Baha'i sacred writings. Short excerpts so that people could get a flavor of what the Baha'i Writings say on that particular topic. It moves fairly quickly. So in the Old Testament, we have topics like, as I've said, God, creation, what the image of God is, the breath of life, the Garden of Eden, Abraham, Moses. So it continues throughout the entire Old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well, where we address the topic of, say, the birth of Jesus, Jesus is the word of God, sin, Satan, the resurrection, and it's well-indexed, and that is the, I think, the beauty of the book, is that it's very user-friendly.
0: So i was speaking with Joanne Borovica, freelance writer, educational consultant, storyteller, performer, and South Carolina artist-in-residence, and we're talking about her book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics, in the Baha'i Writings. Joanne, what is the significance of the title of the book, Light Mm -hmm. of the Kingdom?
1: Well, to me, the Baha'i Writings bring light to mysteries that I had struggled with, that I had read in the biblical text. That's one facet, and it just... To me, it explains, lights things up and makes a sense out of what had before been to me a lot of confusion. Another reason is it's, I borrowed a little bit from a quote of Abdu'l-Bahá. As I mentioned, Abdu'l-Bahá was the son of the founder of the faith and very revered in the Baha'i community when he was visiting london one time he went to a uh, church it was called the city temple in london and he wrote an inscription in the bible of the church this he was invited to do this and what he wrote is and i quote this book is the holy book of god of celestial inspiration it is the bible of salvation the noble gospel it is the mystery of the kingdom and its light. It is the divine bounty, the sign of the guidance of God. End of quote. So in this passage, al baha calls the Bible the mystery of the kingdom, and that's with a capital K, and its light. And I like that phrase and just turned it into light of the kingdom.
0: So I'm speaking with Joanne Boravica freelance writer, educational consultant, storyteller, performer, and South Carolina artist-in-residence. And we're talking about her book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics and the Baha'i Writings. Joanne, do you have some excerpts you could share that will shed some light on Baha'i perspectives on certain biblical topics?
1: Oh, sure. You know, I could turn to any page and just be in love what I see here. One of my favorite topics is the image of God. This is on page 24 of the book and I'll just read under that particular chapter. So the book of Genesis states that the human beings are created in the image of God. Quote, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. That's from Genesis 126. The description of humanity as a life form created in God's image, capable of knowing the attributes of God, is a spiritual truth found in many scriptures. And then here's a quote from the Baha'i writings. Quote, in the Old Testament, we read that God said, let us make man in our own image. In the Gospel, Christ said, I am the Father and the Father is in me. In the Quran, God says, man is my mystery and I am his. Baha'u'llah writes that God says, Thy heart is my home. Purify it for my descent. Thy spirit is my place of revelation. Cleanse it for my manifestation. All these sacred words show us that man is made in God's image, yet the essence of God is incomprehensible to the human mind for the finite understanding cannot be applied to this infinite mystery. End of quote. So then the next question is, what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? To be created in the image and likeness of God is nothing to do with physical appearance. It means having the capacity to acquire spiritual attributes, such as justice, truthfulness, mercy, and other characteristics of divinity. And then from the Baha'i Writings, quote, It is recorded in the Holy Bible that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It is self-evident that the image and likeness mentioned do not apply to the form and semblance of a human being, because the reality of divinity is not limited to any form or figure. Nay, rather, the attributes and characteristics of God are intended. Even as God is pronounced to be just, man must likewise be just. As God is loving and kind to all men, man must likewise manifest loving kindness to all humanity. In a word, the image and likeness of God constitute the virtues of God, and man is intended to become the recipient of the effulgences of divine attributes. This is the essential foundation of all the divine religions, the reality itself common to all. Abraham promulgated this. Moses proclaimed it. Christ and all the prophets upheld this standard and aspect of divine religion. End of quote. So that's a little excerpt there. There. See how exciting to me, being a person who was put off by all the divisions of religion, is that, as you heard in the Baha'i writings, Abdu'l-Baha is speaking reverently Of the biblical scripture explaining it so that it makes spiritual sense in the past often that man was created in the image of God has been interpreted that God looks like man and specifically a male I mean it's been misinterpreted so many ways that have caused damage so here we have the image of God has to do with spiritual attributes It is reverent to Judaism because it it confirms Abraham and Moses. It's reverent to Christianity as it confirms that Christ taught this. He says all the prophets, which would include Muhammad, Buddha, Zoroaster. I mean, it's very inclusive. So here, mankind being created in the image of God is explained in a way that really focuses on the unity of religion And that, to me, rings true.
0: So I'm speaking with Joanne Boravica, freelance writer and educational consultant, and she's author of the book Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics in the Baha'i Writings. And she just read an excerpt on the topic of man being created in the image of God and what does that mean from a Baha'i perspective. Do you have another excerpt
1: for us? Another topic that I've always found fascinating and was just really excited to get uh, the Baha'i perspective on this was the prophecy in the Gospels about the return of Christ and what to expect when the Son of Man would appear, as it says in the Gospels. So, let me go ahead and read an excerpt from this section here. This is under Stars and Clouds in the New Testament. In addition to his return, Christ prophesied certain signs, such as a darkened sun and falling stars that would mark the coming of the next appearance of the messenger of God. And this from the Gospel of Matthew, quote, Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's from Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30. So then our question is, what is the significance of the darkened sun and the falling stars? Like the Baha'i interpretation of similar Old Testament prophecies, New Testament prophecies about darkened and falling celestial lights symbolize the inadequacy of other guidance compared to the new revelation of God, old religious laws that have become outdated, and the abrogation of previous laws by the new appearance of the manifestation of God. In a symbolic sense, leaders of religion who do not recognize the word of God in a new revelation become like fallen stars. Referring to Christ's prophecy, Baha'u'llah states, quote, O concourse of bishops, ye are the stars of the heaven of my knowledge. My mercy desireth not that ye should fall upon the earth. My justice, however, declareth, this is that which the Son hath decreed, and whatsoever hath proceeded out of his blameless, his truth-speaking, trustworthy mouth, can never be altered. End of quote from Baha'u'llah. So in this beautiful passage, the Baha'i writings explain that the falling stars are to be thought of as the religious leadership who, like the time of Christ, when the religious leadership of that time did not all recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that upon his return those who proclaim to be followers of Christ would fall. Their leadership position would fall. In literature, stars are often symbolic of uh, leadership, symbolic of spiritual leadership. And so here we have the symbolism of the stars being, for example, the bishops, who Paha'u'llah points out, that because this was foreordained, and prophesied by Christ, that many religious leaders would fall in their leadership by not recognizing the return of the Son of Man. And that would be the darkening of the stars and the darkening of the sun, where people looked for leadership and guidance from their religious leaders, those leaders would be darkened. I think that's a, a beautiful explanation and one that certainly rings true to me.
0: I'm speaking with Joanne Boravica, freelance writer, educational consultant, and author of the book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics in the Baha'i Writings, and she just read another excerpt where the Baha'i perspective on the biblical writings on the return of Christ and the stars on heaven falling, she reads the Baha'i perspective on what that means. You know, many people are expecting the person of jesus to return uh, mm-hmm. rather than the spirit of the manifestation of god or the messenger of god actually jesus substantiates what that return looks like with the personage of is it isaiah
1: so you're talking about john the baptist yes, and I, am. Elijah. yes
0: I am right
1: yeah so mm-hmm.
0: i don't know if you've captured that in the book to show that this is the way God works, is that the disciples are expecting Elijah. And Jesus makes it very clear. Elijah. Returned, but mm-hmm. it's not the personage of Elijah. Him. So he, he substantiates this whole concept of a return of a spiritual essence and not the personage themselves.
1: Yes, he does. And it's wonderful that we have that in the authority of Christ and the gospel. So to track this down here, I have this under the return of Elijah. It actually starts with, in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, where it says, quote, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. So we have this very direct Old Testament prophecy or prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord or before the Messiah. Okay. And then it, the story continues in the New Testament. We hear of Elijah's return through the story of a vision that came to Zechariah, the future father of John the Baptist. And that reads, quote, "Then there appeared to him, meaning Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense." When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's from the Gospel of Luke. So here we have this wonderful phrase that just states so poetically the way that a, a John the Baptist is going to be the return of Elijah. It says, with the spirit and power of Elijah. So then the story continues. When John the Baptist was confronted by the Pharisees about exactly who he was, because he was now causing great uproar and sort of a a religious troublemaker here, the Gospel of John states, quote, this is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, quote, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. End of quote from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So here we have this interesting thing. Zach, his father's dream says he's going to be the return of the spirit and power of Elijah. When confronted by the Pharisees, uh, John the Baptist says, no. I'm not Elijah. It, I mean, it's right there in the Gospel of John. I am not Elijah. But then, nevertheless, Jesus proclaimed that John the Baptist was Elijah. And this is from the Gospel of Matthew. Quote, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. So, in short, John the Baptist said he was not Elijah. Well, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. And from a Baha'i perspective, both were correct. Um, We can't say Jesus is wrong. I mean, John the Baptist is Elijah, but why did he say he wasn't? We have an explanation from the Baha'i writings. It says, quote, Now they asked John the Baptist, art thou Elijah? And he answered, I am not. Whereas it is said in the gospel that John was the promised Elijah himself. And Christ clearly stated this as well. If John was Elijah, why did he say it was not? And if he was not Elijah, why did Christ say that he was? The reason is that we consider here not the individuality of the person, but the reality of his perfections. That is to say, the very same perfections that Elijah possessed were realized in John the Baptist as well. Thus, John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. What is being considered here is not the essence, but the attributes. For example, last year there was a flower, and this year there has also appeared a of flower. When I say that the flower of last year is returned, I do not mean that the same flower has returned with the self-same identity. But since this flower is endowed with the same attributes as last year's flower, as it possesses the same fragrance, delicacy, color, and form. It is said that last year's flower has returned, and that this is that same flower. Likewise, when spring comes, we say that last year's spring has returned, since all that was found in the former is to be found in the latter. This is why Christ said, you will witness all that came to pass in the days of the former prophets. Okay, and it it does continue to go on, but you can get the point that is described so beautifully and that we have on the authority of Christ and the gospel that the return is a spiritual return.
0: So I'm speaking with Joanne Boravica, freelance writer, educational consultant, and author of the book Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics, and the Baha'i Writings. And she just read a few excerpts, all of which really with the theme of whether it's the image of God or the return of a biblical personage, that it's all a spiritual perspective of what that is.
1: Yeah, we're talking about spiritual realities here. These are spiritual writings.
0: Now, this isn't the only book you've written regarding the relationship between the Bible and the Baha'i writings. I've come across one book called The Ten Plagues of Exodus in Light of the Baha'i Writings.
1: Mm -hmm. That was actually a paper published in Lights Ah. of Irfan. That is a pretty exciting topic. Mm -hmm. And then I've got yeah several papers done over the years that I presented at the Irfan Colloquium and that are uh, published in their books, but also freely available online at baha'i-library.com.
0: And I know you have a website.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's com and that's J-O-A-N-N, B as in boy, O-R-O, V as in Victor, I, C, K, A, dot com.
0: I'll give the link to that website when I uh, post the interview. So, do you have links to those articles as well on your website? I do. What Uh is the Baha'i perspective regarding the 10 plagues of Exodus?
1: Um, You know, the Baha'i writings really do not comment on the historical legitimacy of biblical stories. They do draw on the stories and use them in commentaries for spiritual instruction. I'm familiar with the excavations of biblical areas and biblical archaeology, and I know that tremendous work has been done, really even over the past 10 years, that have disclosed much of what can be proven about the history of the Israelites in that area. I know that current theories actually don't support the story of the Exodus precisely as it is conveyed in the book of exodus although there's all kind of theories about how these plagues could have happened there's a lot of credible evidence and uh, and then theories based on this evidence that they didn't happen that way or may not have happened at all so my question that prompted the study was would that matter to Bahá'ís if it somehow it could be proven and short of a time machine there's no way to prove that the the story happened or didn't happen the way it's written. If somehow it could be proven that the exodus didn't happen or these plagues did not occur as described, would that be devastating to Baha'is? Because the central figures of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, they often draw on these stories and they'll mention the oppression of the Israelites under a tyrannical Pharaoh in commentaries on social justice. Anyway, so that was that was the purpose of my exploration. What I found was, again, you know, the Baha'i writings do not say, yes, this definitely happened, or no, it definitely didn't happen. But what they do is interpret them in a spiritual manner. So basically my conclusion was that whether this was literal history or not wouldn't matter to Baha'is because all the commentary on them has to do with the spiritual meaning, you know, once more. An example, in a book called Some Answered Questions, Abdu'l-Baha, who is the referred to as the center of the covenant of the Baha'i faith, he explains the symbolism of the waters turning to blood. I mean, most people are familiar with the ten plagues, and one of them was that the water the Nile, and waters turned to blood, and then, of course, you can't drink blood, and fish died, and fish can't live in blood, and it was a mess. That's in the book of Exodus. So, from the, a Baha'i perspective, one meaning of the waters turning to blood is the oppression caused by holding onto outdated traditions, that is, the Nile symbolizes the traditional religions, laws, and customs that had been the basis for prosperity in the Egyptian story. I mean, Nile was the source of life. But due to the Pharaoh and the people's pride and denial of the word of God as delivered by Moses, the very source of their life, which was the waters— became the cause of their demise. So the source of their waters that gave them prosperity and pride blinded them or poisoned them so that they couldn't recognize the truth of the word of God as conveyed by Moses. So I'll do a quote here from Abdu'l-Baha. He says, quote, that is, it was in their power, had they so desired, To turn the waters of the Nile into blood for the Egyptians and the deniers, or in other words, to turn, in consequence of their ignorance and pride, that which was the source of their life into the cause of their death. Thus, the sovereignty, wealth, and power of Pharaoh and of his people, which were the source of the nation's life, became as a result of their opposition, denial, and pride, the very cause of their death, ruin. Destruction, degradation, and wretchedness end of quote so in in his further commentary, Abdul Baha draws on this to point out the devastation of oppression and ignorance of the laws of God in this day and in the future. yeah, he draws on this beautiful story, which is uh, so visually and. A fundamental lesson on the oppression and the requirement for liberation, the theology of liberation. And he explains it in a way that really, if, if it never happened, if that water never literally turned to blood, it doesn't matter. The point is that many people at the time of Moses who were living in a pagan kind of lifestyle, which at that time was had a lot of violence in it, were not cleansed by the teachings of the messenger of God. But because of their pride in their tradition or the pride in the old religion, that very pride became their poison. So I'm speaking
0: with Joanne Boravica, author and educational consultant and author of the book, Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics and the Baha'i Writings. But we were also discussing a paper that she wrote about the 10 plagues of Exodus and the light of the Baha'i Writings and an explanation of what that meant. Joanne, there was one other piece of work I noticed where you draw a parallel between the Baha'i historical figure of Tahereh and the biblical figure mm-hmm. of Paul. I'm wondering if you could give us a few minutes and first give those who aren't familiar with Tahereh who she is and her, her significance in the Baha'i faith and then where you see the parallel with Paul.
1: Okay, so yeah, the, that particular paper is entitled Parallels in the Ministry Ministries of Tahereh and Paul. Tahereh was very important in early Baha'i history. She is actually the most renowned heroine of the earliest days of the Baha'i faith. And she proclaimed the separation, actually, of the Baha'i faith from Islam. The Baha'i faith arose in Islamic milieu. Uh, For a while, people thought that Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, was teaching a new movement within Islam, but Baha'u'llah and Tahirah made it very clear that this was a separate religion. She did this at great risk to herself and was eventually martyred because of her beliefs. She also was very instrumental in declaring the liberation of women and the equality of women and men It's it's quite a remarkable story, and there's quite a few books about Tahereh. She's also mentioned in, she's one of the main features in the movie The Gate, which is available at this time and tells about the early history of the faith. Yeah, so Tahereh and Paul, I was, um, I just sort of stumbled across this. I was studying the Book of Acts and studying the life of Paul and uh, what he brought to Christianity. And shortly after that was studying the life and work of Tahereh, And it just uh, occurred to me that there were a lot of similarities. For example, as I mentioned, Tahereh was very instrumental in drawing a distinction between the Baha'i faith and Islam. And that was one of Paul's major missions in his life. In early Christianity, the, of course, the early followers of Christ were Jews. And in scholarship today, they're called, usually referred to as Jewish Christians. It started out where the people felt that in order to be a follower of Christ, you had to be Jewish and you had to follow all the laws of the Torah. And that included male circumcision, which was no great advantage to uh, increasing the number of followers of Christ, because that was a very painful and dangerous thing to do if, if, if for an older person. Anyway, but Paul, much of his mission, he was teaching Gentiles and appealing to Jewish Christians to accept Gentile Christians on the same footing and eventually the gentiles predominated and it became very distinct from judaism so that's one parallel that they had. they both were very instrumental in distinguishing new revelation from old i noticed that in the stories of their lives they both had a vision of the manifestation of god before their conversion to their new faith. Tahereh had a vision of the Bab who was a herald of Baha'u'llah and Baha'is believe a manifestation of God in his own right. And Paul had uh, this vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, that very, very uh, famous incident there. They were both brilliant communicators. A lot of people don't know it, but Tahereh wrote letters, commentaries. She was fluent in Arabic and Farsi and Turkish and she did a lot of translations. And Paul, he was a brilliant writer. I mean, he's still praised as as one of the most brilliant writers of all time and people are still reading his epistles. Both of them were vilified from within their own faith. As I mentioned, the Jewish Christians were not approving of the liberties that Paul wanted for the Gentile Christians, and not all of the early people who were attracted to the teachings of Baha'u'llah were really supportive of the equality of women and men, and they felt that Tahereh was being a little too forward. So those are are a few that uh, I I came up with, maybe nine or a dozen of these uh, similarities, which I thought were really striking about these very high-profile apostles. And also very intriguing that in the past, this role of this apostle that is sort of the, I don't want to say troublemaker, but is really helping people to, trying to help people to see that this is a very different thing from tradition. In the past, it was played out by a man. And in the Baha'i revelation, this very difficult and challenging role was, played by a woman. She really played the role of Paul. I was fascinated to find in some of the writings of the Bob, who again was the herald of Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i faith, a passage where he said that the letters of the living or the apostles, if you will, of one religion are the spiritual return of those same apostles from the previous manifestation. It was really just really sweet to find that quote. I'll go ahead and read that. Yeah, just a little background,
0: Joanne. So, uh, as you're saying, the Bob, the first mm-hmm. first 18 to believe in the Bob were called the letters of, of the living, and they were considered, mm-hmm. you know, as you're saying, disciples similar mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the disciples of Jesus. And now yeah, you're are, saying that mm-hmm. they are in some way are the spiritual descendants of the original disciples of Christ?
1: Mm hmm.
2: All
0: right. yes. Yeah, very yeah. interested. Please proceed.
1: And this is a quote from the Bob. They are the lights which in the past have eternally prostrated themselves and will prostrate themselves eternally in the future before the celestial throne. In each dispensation, they, and here he's talking about the letters of the living, or we could say apostles are called by different names amongst the people. And in each revelation, their individual names are also changed. Yet, the names of their inmost realities, which refer unto God, are manifest in their hearts. That's from a book called The Persian On.
0: So that goes back to the theme again where we were talking about Elijah mm-hmm. and the return of Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. It's a spiritual return of those qualities. Yeah, Yeah. so it was it was a lot of fun to study what the qualities of Paul were and his major contributions and then to see that also light up in the mission of Tahereh.
0: Well, Joanne, thank you so much for sharing your work on the uh, Bible and its Baha'i perspective on, on the Bible. Thank you so
1: mm-hmm. much. You are very
0: welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joanne Borovica, author of Light of the Kingdom, Biblical Topics in the Baha'i Writings. I'll have links to our work on the podcast website, abahaiperspective.com, along with this interview and other interviews. You can also find this interview on my YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website, baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
3: This weight I carry around deep inside me Makes it harder to fly free So fly, little one, fly You're the answer to the prayers of every saint that longed to die No earthly things on your clean, tiny wings Made only of virtue and the sky. is up above to remind me I'm the one that makes the wind There's no strength without the strength to deny you There's no power without the power to sin So fly noble one fly Look above the world within you you can go higher if you try mighty wings, now you know the one who made the sky.
0: WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.